0: ninth commandment. The ninth commandment is a commandment that had a a specific location for the people of Israel. They were told, you shall not commit false testimony against your neighbor. And in certain ways and in certain interpretations, this was a, a fairly narrow commandment. This language of committing false testimony against a neighbor was language that would have been used in a courtroom setting. A setting where there was a judge and people bringing testimony against an individual. And the commandment to the people of Israel was, don't bring false testimony. When you stand before the judge, speak the truth, not what's false. And so in hearing this, some people, uh, and this this fact that it's, it's courtroom language is actually picked up in the Heidelberg Catechism when it says, rather, in court. But then it says, and everywhere else. And the reason for this is that the the human being oftentimes tries to find exemptions to what it is that God's trying to say. And so some people take a look at this commandment and say, well, it it addresses a very specific situation in Israel. People say people weren't supposed to bring false testimony against a neighbor. But it's not talking about anything broader than that. It's not talking about uh, falsehood outside of, of court. One of the things that I want to say this evening is that despite the fact that this language in Exodus 20 about the ninth commandment not committing false testimony, despite the fact that the language could be very narrow, in fact, the interpretation for us is quite broad, and it deals with our dealings with individuals in every part of life. And so that's what we want to talk about this evening, but, but as we begin... I've said that that the interpretation of this is much broader than in just a courtroom setting, and so one of the questions that has always come to my mind with dealing with falsehood is, are there ever any exceptions? This is something that, that several people that I've talked to, and in, in Christian grade school, people always ask, are there any exceptions? Can we ever be deceitful in any sort of way? And And I'll say this. Throughout the history of of the church and throughout the Reformed understanding of the scripture, there have been different sort of exceptions that we've been willing to talk about or entertain. The first makes sense. There are sort of three types of lies that are talked about. The first is called a jocular lie. The second is called a lie of necessity. And the third is called a malicious lie. And different individuals have different sort of thinking on, on each one of these things. The first one, a jocular lie, is something that, hap- that's, that surrounds sort of social convention. And individuals uh, often agree that this is something that's not inappropriate. And in fact, this isn't something that we would even call lying. This is a joke. And what I mean is this. If somebody comes up to you and says, why did the chicken cross the road? You don't need to be like, was there really a chicken? Are you lying to me about that? Or certain individuals, one time I had a friend and she was like, thinking about getting a tongue piercing. She was a very conservative individual, and it got quite the reaction for me. I said, really? She said, no, I'm joking. And at that time, she wasn't intending to deceive or tell a lie, and so she was not a breaker of the ninth commandment by telling this joke. The second thing that I, that I wanted to talk about, because it's, it's something that actually deals uh, with how, the way that people have acted in scripture, is, is what's sometimes called the lie of necessity. And there's a lot of conversation about this. Is there ever a time when a lie is appropriate, where there could be a lie of necessity? And some in church history have said, no, there is no exception. You always tell the truth. St. Augustine was one such theologian. He said, if you tell a lie, you may save your life if you're in a dire situation. But he said, but if you tell a lie and save your life, you may lose your soul, which is far more serious still. I think that's something worth considering, as we consider other, other perspectives as well. What is it that the scriptures say about this? Well, there seem to be instances in the scriptures that talk about situations where something like a lie of necessity can take place. First of all, in Exodus 1, 17 and 20, there are Egyptian midwives. Sifra and Pua are the names of these Egyptian midwives. And they're tasked by the, by the Pharaoh to take the lives of Israelite young boys when they are born. And Sifra and Pua don't do that. They don't do what they're asked. And when the, the, the leaders of Egypt ask them, why is it that you're not taking the lives of these Israelite boys... They invent this story. They say that Israelite women give birth too quickly for them to give there and, and take care of this nasty deed that they've been tasked with. By all accounts, that, that, that wasn't in actuality the case. But in Exodus 1, we're told that they were blessed by God for not taking the lives of these children. In another instance, we're told in Joshua 2 of Rahab, who hid spies. Spies had come from Israel, and they were sort of surveying the land. And as they came to Jericho, they needed a place to hide because they were being sought out, and so Rahab gave them a spot to hide. She hid them on her roof under some straw. And when the people of Jericho came and asked if those individuals were there, she said that they had already left, they had already gone a long way. And in that, again, the scriptures say that this was sort of an act of faith. And she was spared, along with her family, when the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. You know, there have been some other instances in history where individuals have faced difficult situations. There's a church theologian, a a great leader of the church named Athanasius. He was somebody that held to the orthodox doctrine of Jesus Christ. He said that God, the Father, and Jesus Christ were one. And he was saying these things at a time when the secular government was saying that's not true. The secular government was saying that Jesus was a created being. So from time to time, Athanasius would be, would be banished. He faced a great deal of persecution And at one time, the emperor sent individuals to try to find Athanasius, to apprehend him. And so these individuals went out in search of Athanasius. But this was before Facebook or social media or many images or pictures. So nobody that was searching for him really actually knew what the guy looked like. And as they were searching, they came across Athanasius himself. They said to him, do you know where Athanasius is? Can you tell us? Because we are attempting to apprehend him and bring him to the emperor for trial. And Athanasius said, ah, yes, he's very close. If you are careful, you may find him, catch him, and bring him back. And so they went on, thinking that they were close, not knowing that Athanasius himself had given them this information. He was an individual that decided to deceive because he thought it was important to preserve his life and his ministry in the church. Or at the time of the Reformation, there was a Mennonite reformer named Hans Busker. He was being pursued because he was a Mennonite, and so there were individuals that wanted to capture him and put him on trial and persecute him for the fact that he uh, was a Mennonite. And so agents of the state again caught up to Hans Busker as he was riding in a cart with a a large group of individuals. And uh, they came up to the cart and they said, Is Hans Busker here? And Hans Busker stood up in the cart and he said, I can testify that Hans Busker is not seated among this group of people. <laughs> Way of sort of getting around it. And these, these, these individuals of the state thought that surely not everyone in the cart will lie. So they went around one by one. And one by one, every person agreed with that statement. Hans Busker was not seated amongst that group of individuals. So one of the things that I want to say is, is this. Because of what Scripture says, it may be that we can allow for some sort of exemptions. But I think that we need to be exceptionally careful about that. In any of these situations where an individual was willing to to slightly deceive Rahab or Sifra and Pua, those sorts of situations, it was an incredibly dire situation. There were individuals that were seeking to to end the work of God in a certain area. And I think that what's true is that it's highly unlikely that any one of us will ever encounter a situation as grave as that when someone's life is at stake and when deception may be the only way to save that person's life. And so people that want to appeal to this exemption and say, well, there's potentially a lie of necessity, we need to say, well, that lie of necessity may happen But it it could be, you know, like once every like 250 years, once every 500 years. So we need to be people who are very careful not to try to look for exemptions or ways to get around what it is that the scriptures are commanding us. Because most of the lies that we would tell or experience would be that third kind of lie, the malicious lie. The malicious lie is something that we need to always avoid and keep ourselves from, so that we remain in the truth. And that's what I want to spend the majority of time this evening talking about. And I want to talk about it in in sort of three different points. The first is the truth in court, because this is given to us in sort of a courtroom setting. The second is the truth in everyday life, and the third is knowing that truth. And so let's, let's jump into it. The first one is the truth in court. As I mentioned at the beginning, this commandment, to not give false testimony against one's neighbors is one that's given in a specific context, a courtroom context. And there's really good reason that this is given to Israel in this courtroom context. Because in Israel, in this context, telling the truth in court was, was a matter of life and death. One of the things that we know from the law that was given to Israel was that everything depended in court upon what the witnesses said? And in fact, upon the witness, uh, uh, the, the testimony of two witnesses, an individual could be put to death if the charge was serious enough. And so it was incredibly important that the, the truth came out in these proceedings, or else individuals could sort of grab a hold of justice in Israel and make sure that all of the righteous went off to their death. So because of that, because of the fact that there, there was, was life itself that was, that was at stake in being protected, committing false testimony needed to be strictly prohibited. There are a couple of instances that we know of that scripture tells us about of individuals coming and giving false testimony in a court in Israel. The first one is actually recorded for us in 1 Kings 21, and it records the death of Naboth. I think that you may recall the story, Naboth had a vineyard, and King Ahab wanted that vineyard. And so to get rid of Naboth and to be able to annex that vineyard, he had individuals accuse him of a terrible crime, and then present false testimony in a court. And on the testimony of two false witnesses, Naboth was sent out to his own death. The king was able to, to have that vineyard. And it was because of this false testimony that death came to Israel that day. There's a more important sort of situation that probably comes to mind, however, when we think about false testimonies leading someone to death. It's recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 26, 60 and 61, that at the trial of Jesus, the way that the religious leaders attempted to convict Jesus was that they appointed false witnesses to testify against him. And so Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, was sent on the road to the cross because of false testimony. False testimony was serious, serious business because it could lead to death. And in such a context, it makes sense. What's said to us in Proverbs 25, verse 18, we're told, A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a club, a sword, a sword, and a sharp arrow. Those things all killed. And false testimony itself could bring death. Therefore, this was a rule about preserving life in Israel. And because the intent to preserve life was so important, there were all sorts of safeguards that were established to make sure that the truth is what shone through to the people. That false testimony wasn't wasn't allowed in the court. One of those things is that two witnesses is always what was required. Two witnesses, and this is what Deuteronomy 17 tells us. In the testimony of one witness, no one could be condemned no matter how serious the charge. There needed to be two individuals to corroborate that. The reason was is that those courts in Israel had a bias towards protecting life. And whereas one person may have wanted to bear false witness, Hopefully, there would not be two. And so regardless of how serious things were, if there was only one witness, no one could be condemned, and that's because there was the hope to protect life. The second thing was this, is that the, the accusers, the people that were willing to bring the accusation against the individual that was on trial, would have to be the first ones to cast a stone. The first ones that would have to cast a stone in stoning that person to death were told this in Deuteronomy 17, verse 7. And this was another safeguard. Because it may be that people would have been willing to say, yeah, I'll condemn that person to death. But then those people needed to, to sort of put their money where their mouth was and then cast the first stone. This sort of sheds a new light on that story where where when Christ says, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. He's asking them, is anyone here, anyone here making false testimony? And the people were unwilling to cast the first stone, recognizing, recognizing the seriousness of that. I am the accuser. I am the accuser in that situation. So there was a bias in life. And the last thing was this, is that, again, to preserve life, if it came out in the the context of these proceedings that someone was offering false testimony, and this was such a serious crime, that the accusation that was being leveled against someone, that would be put on the accuser's head if it was found out that that accuser was giving false testimony. And so if the accusation was serious enough to send someone to their death, If it it came out that it was a false accusation, the one bringing the accusation would then face that death. Lies were to be avoided. Because in Israel, they killed. They literally and actually killed. And not only could they bring death to the individual facing a charge, but one of the things that would have been true is that they could have brought a sort of death to the whole political system, the whole system of, of, of rulings and of judicial systems, and we can see that that takes place sometimes today. In places where falsehood thrives in countries that don't have an honest system of courts, there can never be thriving for individuals beyond those courts. And the reason is, is that falsehood brings death. And just as it could bring death to individuals in a courtroom setting in Israel, it brings death to whole societies if falsehood sort of is what reigns and carries the day. And so this law given to Israel was one that was given to protect and to preserve life. It was important because in the courts we're told in Psalm 72 that where justice reigns, peace also reigns. That was the goal of telling the people. Don't commit false testimony against your neighbor. Let justice reign and peace reign. But what about today? What about today and and applications of false testimony outside of a courtroom setting? Well, the fact is, and the truth that we probably acknowledge if any one of us has seen falsehood in action, is that lies still kill brothers and sisters, they still kill. And it's true that we don't live in a, in a judicial system that can condemn an individual to die based upon the testimony of two witnesses any longer, but lies still kill. Lies told about an individual can, uh, can chip away at their reputation as we say things behind an individual's back we can share things under the guise of piety, we should pray for such and such a person because I heard they did this. But if it's a lie, that kills. It can destroy a reputation. It can destroy friendships and communities. There's a story that I, that I heard about at my seminary. There were two individuals that went to Westminster Seminary uh, in, in years past. And uh, they were two people that, that started dating And what happened is that, apparently, the guy was a little bit emotionally mature. He didn't relate interpersonally all that well from time to time. And this really frustrated his girlfriend. And so because of that, she started saying mean things about him, untrue things about him. That started to dirty up his reputation. And as I was told, it began to, to fracture friendships as individuals took sides. It split up that relationship. It led to the elders of the congregation needing to visit that student who was in seminary questioning if he should be a minister because there were false things being spread about him by his girlfriend. And the reputation of that young man was dragged through the mud and the campus experienced a sort of death his friends were no longer friends. His people began questioning as a, this man began questioning his calling to the ministry because false testimony began to kill that reputation. The same thing happens on a broader scale if we were to take a look at the libel that occurs today in the media or in television commercials about elected figures. Most people that I've talked to are willing to acknowledge that the political system in this country is profoundly broken. And I think that one of the great reasons for that is that so much of what pervades are lies. There are whole organizations that create false uh, or, or demeaning sort of advertisements about the candidate of a different party that's just meant to sort of torpedo the candidacy. And so lies from one camp go out at one candidate, and so the other candidate responds by cultivating some lies and launching them at the other candidate, and the whole system begins to die. And we wonder why it is that no one seems to be able to get along in Washington, and everyone seems to be corrupted by the system, and the reason is is that lies kill. They kill relationships, and they can kill whole systems. And this is because of what false testimony is. It's something that lives deep. It's something that burrows deep inside of us. And even if we're people that have never given false testimony in a court, we catch ourselves gossiping or judging rashly or twisting other individuals' words. The Proverbs tells us that even the slanderer finds a ready audience. And that his words are like choice morsels that go down into the inner recesses of the heart. Lies are quick to be consumed, but they go into the depths of who we are and they dwell deep. And so we're told the words of James 3, 2-10, that lies are powerful because the tongue is powerful. We're told that it corrupts the whole person, that it sets the whole course of his life on fire and is set on, itself is set on fire by hell. Those are strong words given to us in James. The tongue can be set on fire by by hell itself, we're told. And what's the reason for that? The reason is given to us in John 8, where we're told that the devil himself is the father of lies. The father of lies. What does this mean? It means that whenever we lie or gossip or twist the truth, we're using one of the tools of the devil. And when the enemy comes to us, he comes in falsehood because his ideal is to turn us away from the truth, to get us so, so bound in falsehood that we can't get out. And so as we are individuals, if we engage in lies, then we are people whose tongues can be set afire by hell itself. Lies live deep, and they are serious. Through fall into sin, we've all become individuals who are at times captured by lies. We've become individuals who have used lies, and if we look into our own hearts, we recognize the power of them. How at times it can be so easy and seem so simple to get out of a situation by twisting the truth. But we begin to use the tools of the devil and experience our own tongues being set on fire by hell itself. Lies are powerful and they are dangerous. The truth of God is exchanged for a lie. The world of idolatry is built on lies. And we lie sometimes in order to appear that we don't need redemption. Life is fine. I read the Bible every day. I pray regularly. As long as I keep saying that, people will think everything's okay. Sometimes lies are used to cover up our own need for redemption. And so what's what's the response to this? What's the response to the power of lies that will bind us and kill us? Or redemption, redemption. A redemption that comes from knowing the truth. This is our, our last point here. We must know the truth. And what is the truth? Well, let, me, let me read a, a little bit from John 18 to illustrate what the truth is for us this evening. This is a, a, a fair section of Scripture here. Just feel free to listen. I'm going to begin at verse 28. It's talking about Christ when he was facing his own false accusations at his trial. And this is what we're told. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the place of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the place. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, "'What charges are you bringing against this man?' If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, but we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words that Jesus had spoken indicated the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your own people and your own chief priests who handed you over to me. What is this that you have done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate replied. Jesus answered, you are right in saying that I'm a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born. And for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And in one of the most profound questions that's asked in Scripture, Pilate asks this, he says, says, what is truth, Pilate asked? With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. This for a long time was one of the most puzzling sections of Scripture to me. After an interaction where Jesus says, those who are on the side of truth listen to me, listen to me, Pilate asks the question. What is truth? What is truth, Pilate asks. And for some reason, Jesus doesn't respond. What is truth? This pregnant question is asked, and then it's left unanswered or unresolved. And so Pilate needs to go back outside and tell the people he finds no basis for a charge against him. And so I've often wondered, why Jesus? That would have been the perfect place to give us a definition of truth. Why? Why? And as I I have been thinking about this, I've realized more and more how appropriate Christ's response here is. Because the fact is, is that truth is not just an idea. Truth is a person. Truth is Jesus Christ. He had described himself as the way and the truth and the life. And so as he stood there or sat there before Pilate, the fullness of truth was looking Pilate in the eye and was meeting his gaze. What is truth, Pilate asked. Truth is Jesus Christ. And there was no answer that could have been more fitting than Jesus himself sitting there. Truth was in front of him. Jesus is the truth. Are we willing to be people of the truth? Are we individuals that see how lies bring death, how they kill, and we say, that is not something I want anything to, uh, that I want a part of? I do not want to be a part of that. Well, there's only one way out from underneath those lies, and it's by knowing the truth, and the truth is Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know him? If you know him, you have the truth. And so knowing him, knowing the one who is the truth, knowing Jesus, should make us to be people who then want to speak the truth. And that means that we need to be people who are honest in our dealings with individuals, but that needs to be, means that we also need to be people whose, whose conversation is filled with talk of Christ. Are you willing to speak the truth? You see, because Christ, the truth, is the only one who can set us free from the death that lies. Bring, and He will set us free. And so will we look to Him, believe in the truth, in Jesus Christ, follow Him, serve Him? It's my sincere prayer that we will. And that when we ask, what is truth? That we realize, yes, yes. Jesus, and thus, in trusting in Jesus, fulfill what's commanded to us in the ninth commandment. Amen. Let's pray.